Navigating healthcare insurance can make or break someone's ability to effectively recover from addiction and mental illness. On this episode of Through the Trees, I'm joined by Jay Voigt, Director of Operations at Cedar. We talk about some of the legal aspects to healthcare insurance and connect this to national data around addiction treatment access to care. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Dr. Pat Failing. We're here at Cedar as part of the Through the Trees podcast. I'm really happy today to sit down with Jay Voigt, the Director of Operations uh, for our hospital center and, and a lot of different things, the way it works, the infrastructure. So we're talking a little bit today about some of those kinds of things, specifically that involving insurance. Uh, health insurance is a hot topic in the country, and uh, especially in the realm of insurance coverage for dedicated addiction treatment. And I know there's been changes, and I'm I'm just I'm really excited to talk about this. I, I think it's really pertinent to pretty much any of our listeners, the like the nature of how insurance plays in. Well, thanks for inviting me, Doctor Failing. Hopefully, I can help shed some light on a pretty complicated and oftentimes frustrating situation. Sure. The, what, so where do we begin? Can it, um, the concept of health insurance covering care? How, tell me a little bit of how this how this gets started, how it works. Well, I did a little bit of internet research, and you know the first record of a health insurance company as we know it um, that started paying for at the time it was alcoholism treatment was 1964. So there's quite a history with. Um, substance abuse, alcoholism, addiction, and third-party payers, specifically what we're talking about now being insurance. There's, there's lots of different models. Um, so just regular health insurance, I mean, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new bill or a new law or a new proposal. The longer the short of it, the way our the health insurance that we know in this era as it relates to addiction treatment is bifurcated or separate from from a traditional health care coverage. So you could think of it, Dr. Failing, is like, you know, you have your physical body, your physical health benefit, and then you have what we call your mental health or your behavioral health or your substance abuse benefit. Okay. It's almost like two separate insurances. And so those are packaged together. So like uh, insurance for depression management would be in the same category as insurance for alcoholism. In theory, that's what we're going for. Okay. Um, but it doesn't always look that way. I mean, so I'll just talk a little bit about legislation to frame our conversation. Um, I mean, there are two significant laws that passed that really impact the way uh, we experience addiction treatment coverage today. Um, so the first one was in 1996, and it was the Mental Health Parity Act. Basically, what that act said was, Hey, if you're a, a medical health insurer and um, you're treating people, you need to also include um, substance abuse 
and mental health benefits. So the law differentiates between the two at times. As you and I know, Dr. Failing, right, we kind of see it as a continuum. A substance use disorder is, in fact, a, a mental health disorder. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, of course. So, but for our listeners, you know, when you're doing, doing your reading, they're often framed separately. But so, so that law passed in 96, and it was great. It made a lot of sense. But what do you think really happened? The insurance companies found a way around it. Uh, what they ended up doing is really raising deductibles and having outlandish co-pays. So effectively, you know, it wasn't working at all. And that kind of spurred on um, the next bill, which is the Mental Health and Parity Addiction Equity Act. So that was 2008 when that passed. And we also talk about the Affordable Care Act, ACA, right, in 2010. So basically, the, in 2008, the Parity Equity Act spoke to some of the uh, ways insurance companies were trying to get around paying for treatment. So they said copays need to be the same for any specialist, whether it's, you know, your cardiac surgeon or an addictions counselor. So it kind of took the, the loophole out that the insurance companies were using um, to, to ration or limit um, someone's ability to, to get treatment. So I know you threw out the, the term parity. So uh, what is this? What does parity mean? Sure, that's a great question. Parity in this context is equality in care regardless of ability to pay. So the idea, um, you know, the premise in America, we kind of see healthcare as a human right, and and we believe that it that it shouldn't be rationed. That's what we believe in theory. The way it actually plays out isn't quite that case, but um, I think if you ask most people, they'd say yes. People are entitled to health care. The question is the, how, what kind of health care and how much health care. The stigma around addiction and mental health, you know, behavioral health issues, really complicate the scene. And they're oftentimes left out or seen as secondary to some of these other what we would call primary physical health care conditions. So, the, so uh, diabetes, heart disease, they would be in one column mental health addiction would be in a different column, and then insurance companies would charge different amounts to make one condition more treatable compared to an addiction condition? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, I was talking to someone that worked um, on behavioral health issues inside an insurance company, and this person, this was a major insurance company, and this person was talking with the insurance company's president. And basically, the question he asked was, you know, what's the deal with, you know, behavioral health? Like, why is this such an issue for insurance companies to cover this? And the the president or CEO's response was something to the effect of, it's such a small percentage of cost, um, it's not worth our time focusing on it. We Uh want to focus on, you know, expensive health care conditions. And if you think about it, if you do the research, that, yeah, behavioral health care is generally speaking, you know, more affordable, but what we see is a a lack of competent providers. Um, I think we see a lack of understanding of what behavioral health disorders are. We see our industry hasn't been really great about outcomes, so we're not so good at showing our work and how it impacts, you know, these other co-occurring medical conditions. Sure. Like the, I know there's strong associations linking depression and cardiac disease, so if you have somebody who has poorly treated depression, are they at a higher rate of a, having a heart attack at a younger age? 
I'm, I'm sure that that would go into all of this math. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, to use that example, you know, Dr. Failing, if I have heart disease and I'm seeking treatment for that heart disease, um, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess it's kind of expensive. You know, there's some specialists involved. It's going to cost, you know, thousands of dollars for whatever kind of care I'm getting. And we know that shooting meth or snorting cocaine, you know, are, are not indicated for anybody, but especially when you have a heart condition. But when I go to that doctor to get treatment for my heart condition, we operate out of a fee-for-service model. That physician is compensated for the services that they give me. They don't really have a financial incentive to not treat me. Um, it's not likely that they're going to send me to substance use treatment. One, because I probably wasn't honest about it. Two, you know, they might not be trained or, or capable of having that conversation. Um, so the insurance company, um, they're not so interested in, in uh, covering addiction treatment, even though it will keep me out of, it could keep me out of um, the hospital or keep me from getting treatment for other more serious conditions. So it's kind of weird. I mean, what we need to move towards is a, is a different model, um, incentive to keep people well and um, capitated, you know, healthcare plans that we're seeing show up around here look like that. Kaiser Permanente is probably one of the leaders in, in population health. In bundled payments, we're beginning to see bundled payments for medical conditions. So whether it's a hip replacement or, you know, some kind of transplant, providers are beginning to be incentivized to keep people well. In, instead of them... Recurrent disease keeps people coming in the door, I guess. More disease equals more money. Now, I, yeah. don't, I don't mean to speak ill of the medical profession. That's not what I'm getting at at all. Um, there's a lot of players involved. But, yeah, the, the way it works in medicine, generally speaking, is the more you do, the more you make. So, for example, in America, we do twice as much diagnostic testing than any other industrialized nation. So we're doing more MRIs, more X-rays, more lab work. And the you know research says that that's not really benefiting us, but we still continue to do it. There's a lot of things that, that don't make sense, but you know it's kind of the healthcare system that we've been accustomed to. Sure. Well, very interesting. So that so you said that there were we're really talking about three important acts. You said ninety six, two thousand and six, two thousand and eight, two thousand eight, two thousand ten, okay. the ACA. Okay, and these have adjusted, these have all involved some themes of parity and specifically behavioral health benefits. Mm hmm Okay. So pre-existing conditions also was something big that, you know, came out of the ACA, and insurance companies had previously been um, looking at mental health, behavioral health issues, and they could argue that those are pre-existing conditions and a reason to have a really high premium for somebody that might have a substance use disorder. So with, with the current law of this, if you have, let's say you're in recovery from opioid addiction and you've been in recovery for five years, th that would be a pre-existing condition? Could be if, you're, if your health insurance company was aware of it. Oh, okay. Okay. So like that you had either received structured treatment for it in the past or somehow it got, it got logged. Right, a okay. diagnosis somewhere from a provider. Okay, and then but right now you can't. So with the with the Affordable Care Act, you cannot be declined coverage for having that 
prior medical problem. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, very good. So I know that we at Cedar have made a lot of efforts to have more engagement with insurance over this past year. This has been a big uh, adjustment and kind of a, a gradual shifting that we've been doing. Can you uh, talk a little bit about this, Jay? What, what's been happening on, from Cedar's point of view? Sure, absolutely. So um, basically one of the things that we know, Dr. Failing, is that you know, they say 10% of people in America that need treatment are going to get it. Um, there's this other 90% of, of a population out there, folks, who are experiencing a substance use disorder and they're not engaged in any kind of care. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, access issue, there's not enough providers that are able to, you know, treat these conditions. And part of the reason for that is reimbursement rates are very low, particularly for psychiatry. So what that means is people need alternative funding sources to, to uh, access treatment, and treatment is getting watered down in some places. So Cedar, for example, we used to be exclusively self-pay. We were asking people to pay the cost of treatment. Um, but over time, people, most people are insured nowadays, and patients are opting to use their, um, their health insurance, which is very reasonable. I would want to use my health insurance instead of paying you know, $29,000 out of pocket if I had the opportunity as well. So they're using their health insurance, and so they're going to treatment providers that will, will in fact, use their their health insurance benefit. So Cedar, recognizing that, about two years ago we started um, with Cigna and then more recently with Blue Cross and pretty soon we'll be in a contract with Optum. So we've contracted with these companies to make um, Cedar more accessible to folks that do have an insurance benefit. Um, so right now I'd say probably about 60% of our patients are using some kind of third-party insurance to access care. Whereas three years ago, um, that was not the case. How much of how much care do those benefits provide? Will that will they support uh, like a full month of residential treatment, or do they? Is that on a case by case basis? Yeah, it really varies. It depends on the on the insurance company. Let me just put out there real quick. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about insurance companies. I think people tend to demonize them oftentimes. One of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act was that um, all health insurance, including behavioral health or addiction treatment coverage, that 80% of that money, 80% of the premiums, had to go to provision of care, delivery of care. And 20% could be retained for administrative costs, marketing, and profit. So at the end of the day, you'd be hard-pressed to find any insurer that has more than a 6% profit margin. So what this means is, you know, these companies aren't really like saving all this money by not letting people go to addiction treatment. So when they're sitting there trying to make a determination about somebody's appropriateness for care, they're not really looking at dollar signs. What they're really looking more to do is to is to move somebody to, you know, outside of the treatment continuum, if you will. And they would do that with any condition, not just addiction treatment. So if I needed a new a transplant, uh, my you know my uh, physician would need to make a you know strong case for that, and they would provide services for me, do the transplant, and, and send me on my way. So try, paying a lot of attention to efficiency, 
rates of recovery, kind of what is, what's the most efficient, most effective way to move somebody through their addiction journey and into kind of a long-term health stability? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's a fair statement. Um, not unlike any other chronic disease, you know, if you look at how insurance companies deal with diabetes, you know, some of them have case managers, but for the most part, you know, they want to, they'll pay for the meds and they want to move you, you know, have you not go to the ED and have you get treatment at your primary care doc. So, I mean, in, in terms of, of insurance and addiction treatment, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. One, that, you know, my insurance company owes me 30 days of inpatient treatment. That used to be the case in the 90s. You know, a lot of these HMOs were were really paying for up to 90 days of treatment at a time. Um, but what we're seeing now is they're basing somebody's um, treatment stay on the um, remission of their condition. So uh, what that requires is thorough documentation from the treatment team throughout the treatment stay and regular um, utilization reviews with these companies. So for example, um, we could have a patient come in and we would call, let's just say Blue Cross, and Blue Cross would authorize three days of detox. Okay. So this particular patient would go do detox for up to three days and once they're medically cleared then we would ask for an authorization for them to participate in residential treatment. Blue Cross might say, great, we'll authorize a week, call us back then. So we have a week to, to treat this patient to get, them, to get them ready for whatever the next step is, not knowing if they'll be discharging in a week, if they'll be paying out of pocket to stay, uh, or they'll be getting an extension from their insurance company. Um, oftentimes those insurance companies will deny extensions, and then we would have someone like yourself do what we call a doc-to-doc, where um, initially the patient was denied a, a second week of treatment, and so you have a, a psychiatrist or physician on, on either side um, talking about why the patient needs more treatment. I know on our podcast... I don't believe we've spent time over the last many episodes really talking about what we call the continuum of care. And I think that that's an important thing for our listeners uh, regarding the topic of insurance benefits. So uh, the continuum of care is really a four-level scaffolding of available dedicated dual diagnosis or addiction treatment. Um, the first level being outpatient care. The second level something called intensive outpatient the third level is uh, some blend of sober living and we call extended care. And then the, the top level of treatment is more kind of classical, intensive residential care. So the idea with this continuum of care is uh, we want to meet people where they're at. So if they're medically cleared, if they're safe, if they're not going to have a seizure, um, they wouldn't need to be in a detox um, for an extended period of time beyond maybe an assessment. Somebody in our in our outpatient you know continuum of care maybe they um, have a job and a family and are able to stay sober at work and while with the family they just need a little help with nights and weekends which is where those services could come into play. In terms of maintenance for recovery, um, you know the studies that we look at have shown that folks do best when they're monitored for an extended period of time. Uh, five years is, seems to be the gold standard, particularly with uh, physicians, you know, in recovery. And part of that monitoring um, 
It could be UAs, you know, drug tests, or it also could be participating in a weekly recovery group. It could involve some case management, some peer coaching. So our, as our continuum expanded, as we came to realize the necessity to, to retain people in care longer than 30 days. So that's why we developed our residential extended care program, um, which is 60 days. Right now we're in the middle of establishing a partial program, which is another level of care where folks receive treatment for um, five days a week for six hours at a time. So that's also called day treatment. Yes, absolutely. Step down from that would be you know, intensive outpatient. There's three groups, three times a week for three hours. And then there's other, you know, once a week, twice a week kind of groups and individual therapy. So that's from the, I mean, aside from the therapy, we also provide addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry services all throughout our whole continuum. So, so if you have health insurance, does, do, does the law require that an insurance plan will provide some potential coverage for each of our four levels of care? Um, no, I don't, I don't believe that to be the case. Um, I don't know definitively, but, um, I know some insurance companies don't cover certain levels of care, like partial, for example. So, um, Medicaid does not cover partial or residential treatment. We have the opportunity and we've contracted with Blue Cross to cover partial and residential treatment. They, so they would recommend, like, if you were... I'm just thinking, maybe thinking out loud, if you had insurance benefits and had active addiction, you'd get that assessed. They would then determine what they thought was the appropriate level of care. And then the insurance, they they will decide if they want to provide compensation, if that meets, if that's within their criteria. Yeah, essentially. I mean, yes, if you can look at it as they're making a judgment and rationing care. So you're the physician, and you make a determination about the patient sitting in front of you. They're on the telephone, and they have a, a formulary or a rubric or some way of determining remotely that you're wrong. Okay. Are, th- are there situations where insurance won't will kind of reject everything? Like they won't even cover outpatient counseling? Um, that's pretty uncommon. Um, I haven't seen that. Um, here, that would probably then you'd be in the, the concept we call a parity violation. Like, why are they not exactly, exactly? So back to this idea that um, behavioral health is small potatoes; it's not worth their time to really focus on it. I mean, without patient treatment being the least restrictive and most inexpensive level of care, we haven't really seen much of an attempt for them to ration outpatient services. It's much more the inpatient residential and partial levels of care that they're likely to scrutinize. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. So what do we got? We've got uh, the, the laws that are on the books that address requirements for care. We've got a little bit on the statistics of the country. I know, Jay, you said only about 10% of people who need addiction-focused health care get it. What happens to the, the other 90%? Well, that's a great question, Dr. Failing, and um, 
I think that's a great segue kind of into the next area I wanted to talk about is about why people do or don't seek treatment. So where people ask, are we a locked facility? And of course not, we're not a locked facility. The next question is, is treatment mandated? I don't, I don't really believe that most addiction treatment is voluntary. I believe that most people are coming to us as a result of a psychosocial crisis. So a relationship difficulty, maybe difficulty on the job, maybe a healthcare condition that's um, getting worse because of use. Most people are coming in as a result of a, of a serious consequence. Um, and part of the, the nature of addiction is it's to the, to the person that's an addict, oftentimes they don't feel that they have an issue or a problem until some kind of external force um, indicates otherwise. Okay, and then they 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 kind of pick up the phone, and then what come what would come next? Well, that's a it's a it's a I wish it worked that way, but usually they're not the one picking up the phone. Usually it's a loved one picking up the phone. Oh, okay, um, over so, half of our calls are coming from loved ones wanting to get the the addict into treatment, and sometimes that's indicated if they're really far down. You know, if they're so intoxicated they can't speak or they're passed out. Or they're unable to carry on a coherent conversation. But yes, yeah, so the family or the person pick up the phone and would call us here at Cedar, um, and we our admissions team would initiate a, a pre-admission screen. So we would begin to ask questions um, to help see if um, the patient is a, a fit for our program. Um, so for example, we don't take court-ordered or court-mandated folks to treatment. Uh, we don't have the ability to um, treat somebody right now that speaks um, German. We only treat adults. You know, our specialty isn't with children. So we'd ask a bunch of questions to get a good picture, um, and also a medical picture. What are their co-occurring medical conditions? What medications are they on? Um, at that point, after we've gathered all that information, um, every single one of our potential admissions for our residential programs we would approach someone like yourself, Dr. Failing, and have the medical staff make a determination. Either one, the person screened okay and we can admit them. Two, uh, absolutely not. We don't treat X, Y, and Z. Or three, I need more information to make an accurate assessment. Are there people who have maybe the opportunity to receive treatment but are saying no? So they, they for different different reasons, I guess, or yeah, absolutely. So um, one study, you know, from 2005, kind of looked exactly at that, and um, of those people that uh, that 90% I referred to before that could benefit from treatment but are choosing not to come, 38% of those folks um, were not ready to stop. That was the reason they gave for not pursuing treatment. Okay. Um, 32% of folks didn't come because of coverage. They were worried, you know, would treatment be paid for, covered by their... Oh, interesting. So that's a, th a third of that. That gets back to our discussion around insurance benefits and reimbursement. So about a third of people, that's their their limiting factor. Absolutely. Real or perceived, you know, that's, that's an issue. So I, I mean, I couldn't definitively say, but that was the perception at the time. Um, okay. But yeah, addiction treatment historically has been very difficult to access, and um, I'd encourage our listeners, if they have a question about their, their insurance coverage, absolutely call your insurance company, but you know, give us a call. We'd be happy to talk to you about 
um, what plans we accept. Navigating the healthcare system is extremely difficult for physical health conditions, not to mention some of these other behavioral health conditions. Sure. Especially yeah, if somebody's clinically depressed or severe substance use, it, I, I'm sure it's very overwhelming for them to have to w- look at insurance documentation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, so, uh, Jay, very interesting. Do you, Is there anything that you know of that's happening on a federal level? I mean, I, I read some things in the news about things like grants and uh, national funding to confront the opioid epidemic. The, uh, what do you know about this? Well, what I can say, I mean, I've been in the industry for over 15 years, and um, I've spoken with people who've been in the industry a lot longer than myself, and it comes and goes in cycles. Uh, particularly here in Colorado this year, we're seeing an increase in meth and cocaine use. There's times where specific drugs are hot in one place and not in another. Addiction is not really a new problem. It just looks different in different places. So, you know, the press that we're getting right now around, you know, the opioid epidemic, I think is fueling the legislators' response and, and some funding coming around because of that. I think we're all kind of uncertain with the current administration to what that will actually look like. Dollars have been designated, but they haven't been allocated as as far as I'm understanding things right now. I think, you know, my area of focus, what I'd really like to see, you know, the most in the, the next year or two would be some things to make addiction treatment more accessible by embedding or integrating services in other parts of healthcare that people already access. Okay, like how would how would that work? Can you can you give us an example? Sure, the, the concept's not new, but the idea is, you know, you would go to, you know, the emergency room or to your primary care doctor or urgent care. Um, wherever you access your health care, you would go there and there would be somebody there that would be able to treat and or and more likely refer you to some specific treatment that would meet your needs. So for example, our emergency department here at UC Health six months ago um, started a program where um, if people are coming in addicted to opioids to the ER, they can start them on Suboxone and refer them to a treatment provider where they can get care um, within 72 hours. Oh, okay. So that's a great example of embedded or integrated care um, that's, that's happening in our environment. To try to reduce the uh, the potential gaps or the pe- potential interference that somebody will actually get treatment started for themselves, we kind of I know we've we've thrown out the idea of like a warm handoff. I imagine that that's a that's a part of this discussion. Sure, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the you know the reasons I indicated previously about why people don't seek treatment, right? Well, I'm not ready to stop and not sure about my coverage. Well, if you're sitting in front of a doctor chances are you know if that visit is paid for and that doctor or someone on that team could tell you you know please come down the hall and talk to my colleague you know they're going to offer you some services not ready to stop Um, just like any other behavioral health issue I like to use the example of changing a diet how many times have you heard an individual say I'm trying to give up sweets or not eat cheeseburgers anymore or fill in the blank and then oftentimes they'll end up doing what they said they wouldn't do. They'll shrug it off and, 
you know, not that big a deal. Um, but that illustrates a little bit about kind of what we see with people in addiction um, being ready to stop. There's never a good time to stop in the, in the person's mind. Sure. Um, so if I'm in the ED getting treatment for my broken arm that was caused by my fall because of my nodding out on heroin, um, my arm has been mended, you know what? Why the hell not? I'm already here. Doctor said that they'll see me. They can give me the medication. I'm more likely to give it a go than sitting on my couch watching TV pondering who would I call and where would I go. Sure. Like, uh, yeah, strike when the iron's hot. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Jay, this has been very good. I think we're talking about access to care, how insurance interweaves with some of this. Any kind of additional thoughts for our listeners that if you, if you were uh, if if you were listening to this podcast, what you'd want to know about some of the real basics around insurance and accessing healthcare. Yeah, I think I mean and Dr. Failing, thank you for having me on, but I th- I think I would kind of close with this. You know, one of the the greatest predictor of health in America is somebody's ability to navigate our healthcare system. Um that's unfortunate, but that's true. So we need to be good stewards of our health and we need to learn to access services, not just behavioral health services. But specific to behavioral health services, um, if you're a friend or a family member listening to this podcast today and you have a concern about a loved one, educate yourself. Get some information. Uh, One of the things that we're doing here at CEDAR is we're working on rolling out a program where we do educate patients and families on specifics around how to access addiction treatment services. And the reason that's important is that most people will seek services more than once in their lifetime for addiction treatment. So one of the best skills we can do would be to teach these friends and family members how to remove some of these barriers to quickly access services and efficiently access services. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, I have a lot of hope. I think we're doing a lot of neat things in America, and I know we're doing a lot of great things at Cedar. But, yeah, thanks again, Dr. Finley, for having me on. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, feel free as a listener. You're welcome to call our admissions team and talk about... Uh, your insurance and potential ways that we can maybe provide some guidance about either accessing healthcare with us or or other options in the metro area. We're here to help. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you much, Jay. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery.